Podcast, your monthly podcast hookup for the latest and greatest in evidence-based practice in physical therapy. We're happy to have you back. This month we're going to be discussing clinical prediction rules, and if they're the worst thing ever, or if they're the greatest thing that's ever been invented. Uh, just for a little bit of background, for those of you who think we're talking about compressions and rescue breaths, <laughs> <laughs> clinical prediction rules have been around for a few years now, and essentially it's a system in which we try to assign a intervention to a patient that's going to make them have the best outcome possible. The way these studies are done is that they take a group of people, they measure pretty much everything that they can about them, they render an intervention, and then they see who had a successful outcome. They'll take that information, they create a little bit of a regression, and essentially a set of characteristics uh, that suggest that people will benefit from this treatment. The way it's been packaged and sold to PTs is that if these people meet these criteria, they should get this intervention and it's going to be the one thing that makes them so much better. In practice, many of us have seen that be frustrating, and there are several criticisms that exist out in the PT world right now of these clinical prediction rules, and that's what we're here to discuss today. So I have my all-star panel. I got Casey, I have Meredith, and I have Riley, all doctors, of course and professionals in the field and we are going to be breaking this down so let's start with kind of the popular criticism uh dr chad cook many people know uh, of him and his uh strong opinions has written an editorial uh sometime back that was on facebook and many other mediums criticizing clinical prediction rules he was among several that had done so essentially saying that they don't tell you what they say they tell you, and that by and far the studies are not of the quality that we hold them up to. So we're going to start there by just trying to get a tear into these a little bit and, and see what see what the panel here thinks. So I'm going to pass it over to Casey to start. What do you think about the criticisms that have been leveled against CPRs? Do you think they're valid? Do you have other concerns that Chad hasn't mentioned? No, I definitely think they're valid. Um, I recently read a systematic review back in 2009, so, you know, a, a few years ago, by a name I cannot pronounce. So Mark Bishop was one of the authors on there. It was in um, the Physical Therapy Journal by the APTA. And essentially they listed five big problematic areas. So blinding assessors and the treating clinicians, using an appropriate cohort and definition of duration of symptoms, follow-up periods probably need to be a little bit longer, assessment of potential prognostic factors or um, assessment of potential psychosocial factors. And then, you know, a lot of these studies have limited sample sizes. And one of the recommendations I actually thought there was really interesting was they recommended 10 to 15 participants per variable, which would really limit some of the longer, more obscure CPRs that we all know and love. Could you possibly be referring to the... Uh, CPR that suggests low back patients who would benefit from Pilates-based treatments? <laughs> maybe. Yeah. Maybe. <laughs> that's, a, that's in the list there? I think so. Uh, so what do you think? Do you think those are all reasonable criticisms? What, what don't you like about CPRs? I definitely think they're all reasonable criticisms. Uh, one of the things that I consistently read while you know researching for this podcast was that the quality of studies that these CPRs are being derived from are low quality studies. So if we want better clinical prediction rules, our studies have to be more stringent or they need to be validated. So Riley, do you think that these clinical prediction rules are prescriptive? Can we use them like that? No. And it, it is important that we're only talking about 
prescriptive clinical prediction rules here. They're the only ones that we're really criticizing. But even though all the, I think all those criticisms are valid about the quality of the study, but I'm less concerned even about the methodological flaws and more concerned about the actual structure of the study in the first place. The studies were never set up correctly claim what what they're claiming. No matter how how good of an outcome you got or how strong it was, how strong the effect size was, it's still not telling you that this intervention is the best. It's just telling you prognostically which patients are going to get better. So does that suggest on some level that the I don't know, the characteristics that are being derived from these CPRs aren't necessarily telling you lumbar manipulation or whatever it may be is going to help. It just is telling you these are the patients that will probably get better with any treatment. Would you guys say that that's a possibility? Exactly. So the, so the problem is that they don't have any comparison groups. So I think like you, you talked about how they'll take a, a group of people with low back pain, for instance, and they will measure a whole lot of different characteristics, subjective, objective, and then they give them all one treatment and then they look at the ones that got better by 50% or 30%. And then they look back and say, oh, they had these factors and they got better with a manipulation. But the problem is they don't have any group where they didn't do a manipulation or where they did a different treatment. So you could have, you could have had a group that didn't get any treatment and it could have been the exact same factors that influenced that, that population to get better just by chance or the passage of time or the natural course of the injury, especially with acute low back pain, that it's going to improve over time regardless. So there's obviously, you touched on the difference between prescriptive CPRs and I guess what we would consider diagnostic CPRs. This is not, that's not the realm that you're venturing into. You're specific to the intervention-based ones, correct? Yes. There's an argument for using diagnostic CPRs, especially in newer clinicians that don't have a ton of experience yet. Mm. So those are almost more beneficial to me. They don't tell you what to do. They just tell you what you're looking at. And then you can use other forms, this clinical practice guidelines or other research clinical experience to help guide your treatment from there. Well, I think too, especially with diagnostic CPRs, you're looking at a a study that's being measured against a goal, a supposed gold standard. So there's there's a comparison to a reference standard. And the issue I think that Riley brings up that there is no comparison group in a prescriptive CPR, at least not to this point, and the ones that we've seen raises the, the red flag. So I guess the question is, is, you know, is this just absolutely terrible information? Is this, should this be like, you know, scorched earth burned from the eyes of all <laughs> therapists who have ever read it? Like, is there a place for this, Cabe? Um, I think there's a place. It's just in a matter of how you view the information. If you look at it more as a prognostic factor for your patient instead of purely I need to thoracic manipulate my patients with neck pain so that they will get better. If you just look at it as the prognostic factors that are found in that study are the patients that are probably going to benefit from some intervention, whatever you may choose it to be. Mm-hmm. So the idea of it is good. It's just our frame of reference for looking at it and understanding them and then using them in our practice. Maybe when you're educating your patients on their expectations of treatment, how long how long do you think this is going to take to get better? And well, if we uh, if we manipulate your lumbar spine, you're probably going to be better within a few weeks. Versus this is probably going to take a few months because we know that you know prognostically it's just not as as favorable for that person. 
I think one of the other things that's important to bring up, and I think it's a little bit easier of a jump for some of the clinicians who are just getting into CPRs or who maybe have found these and were really excited about them, is that the vast majority have also not been validated. So even though they don't have a comparison group, there's only one CPR that's even actually made it all the way through validation. And so what we mean by that, if you're not familiar, is essentially taking the CPR and applying the rule to a whole new sample size and seeing if it holds up. And the lumbar manipulation, to my knowledge, is the only CPR that has made it through validation. The only prescriptive CPR. Yes, the only prescriptive CPR. And, you know, even recently, within the last couple of months, we saw another one fail validation. So there was a CPR for cervicothoracic manipulation for shoulder pain, which a treatment that I think a lot of us do, you know, if we have a shoulder pain patient that will look regionally to the thoracic spine. But that CPR failed validation as well. So that's the other issue here is that even within its own construct, they're not succeeding on a regular basis. By and far, they're actually failing on a regular basis. I just wonder why why it's still taught so much in every education program. We all just took the OCS and we're forced <laughs> to memorize every single one of them, all these obscure clinical prediction rules. So even at, like, at the highest level of certification, they are very much accepted when is that going to change or is it going to change so maybe what why do you guys think that is and what has been your experience using them casey why, why do you think that is that it's like that and how do you use them i don't even know where to begin to speculate as to why that is other than we don't have a whole lot that's better and that that is what i see is okay this is the information i have you know after studying especially i'm going okay this is the best of the best orthopedic evidence that I have been given and it includes CCPRs that I now think are crap. So, you know, I don't think there's a whole lot out there from a prescriptive standpoint other than the clinical practice guidelines like we mentioned, which are have been enormously helpful. Yeah, just like how do you do you use these? And if oh, you do use them or how sense. have you used them in the past maybe? Because like, you know, if it really is bottom of the barrel research, you know, yeah. is there a way that you can use them or that you have used them? I think in my in my current clinical practice, I use diagnostic CPRs far more often, if not all the time, more often than prescriptive CPRs. I am more apt to look at the person in front of me, look at their impairments and their functional limitations, and then break down what they need from there. Or I'm using a treatment-based classification system and going, okay, are they in pain control? Are they in stabilization? Or do we need to be optimizing their functional movement? Kind of where are we on that continuum versus, well, what factors do you have that may justify using something that I'm probably going to use anyway? Yeah, it's like along with being the only rule that's validated, the lumbar CPR, lumbar manipulation, is like the only one that's even remotely practical. I mean, the idea that you're going to recall these six different obscure (laughs) factors while you're doing an exam thinking about all these other things. I mean, we're taught this way, but who does that? Do you know any clinician that is like, yes, they fit four of six, and so now I'm going to manipulate their thoracic spine, and there's a 76% chance that this is going to get them more than 50% better. Like, nobody does that. (laughs) That's what we need to tell them. You're positive likelihood ratio is really good. I have a lot of patients who are interested in the positive likelihood ratio of their improvement. And also who know what that is. Maybe I'm just bitter because of just having studied for the OCS. It's really irritating though. Yeah. 
we say that now. We don't know if we passed yet or not. <laughs> but yes, I do, I mean, to, to address your question, like, I think it, I think the reason why they are so, they're so prevalent in, like, education programs is because they, they are well-intentioned. And so it, it comes from PTs trying to be as evidence-based as they can. So they're, like, grasping on every bit of evidence that we have, even yeah. if it's crappy and even if it doesn't, you know... I also think it comes from a place of trying to establish some sort of agreement and guidelines on what manual therapy looks like and what those interventions are. Like, I was reading a ton of the history of manual therapy in my fellowship lately. It's very delightful reading, in case you're wondering. (laughs) And a lot of it was talking about how, you know, we define manual therapy by 20 different definitions if you ask 20 different therapists. So I think it's a way of the community as a whole trying to establish some set guidelines um, it's just a matter of we haven't found the best way to do that yet, and maybe we need to take CPRs and evolve them and only come up with diagnostic ones or prognostic ones or whatever it may be, but it's just kind of the starting point in the evidence, which is really our evidence has grown so much in the last 10 years that it really is kind of the infancy of these CPRs. I mean, I think they will continue to develop and could be a beneficial thing if they were just used correctly and structured and tested correctly. Yeah, yeah. ultimately the the research just needs to be better. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's like almost then we can take them more seriously. But when you're dealing with, you know, super small sample sizes, nobody's blinded, it's going, okay, you're you're missing the basic basic aspects of research that we really need to consider equality. I think there's something to be said for the idea that they're also, while they do have many parts to them, they're easy to digest. It is yeah. not abstract. It's easy to understand if this person fits this, this, and this black and white criteria, and then I do this black and white treatment. And I think from uh, from a novice therapist, and even probably even from some practice therapists, that's a comforting thought. But yeah. the problem is, is that they come from a place that is not necessarily a strong evidence foundation as far as the design of the studies or the derivation of the studies. And then even within the study, there's very little comparison to the other possibilities for why these patients could be getting better. So I, certainly I think part of it is also the ease of use and that kind of comfort of, oh my gosh, this is exactly what I need to do, A plus B equals C. So I certainly think that's part of it. What about this idea of, I don't know, screening it to the point where it's something that we use for the novice clinician to help them get used to or comfortable with the idea of administering treatments that sometimes in PT school, like manipulations, are thought to be a little bit more risky and then transitioning them out of it? Is this... Uh, is it a bad idea to teach someone something good for the wrong reasons? Thoughts? Yes. yes. <laughs> yeah. Riley says no. She says hell no. <laughs> I would just rather rather teach them what the actual risks are of manipulation and that it's very, very low and give them confidence in doing manipulation for that reason. And, you know, the fact we know manual therapy is a really effective treatment in general and we know it's low risk, that's all you need to know. You don't have to cushion it with this bad evidence yeah i think you can fall back on the cpgs Mm -hmm. which are based on a wealth of information and tell you that manipulations are a great treatment option for most cases and then that has a lot more weight to it to me than some cpr that somebody decided was a good idea well and even when you're not looking at manipulations if you're looking at just you know manual therapy and exercise i think what i like about the cpgs is that they foster a certain level of creativity in clinicians. Like they really leave the door open to what works for you or what your patient may be presenting with. And I think that 
sometimes novice clinicians lack that creativity. You know, you have this great foundation from what you've had from your clinical rotations. You have like a small bank of exercises, but really you need to be able to adapt your thinking to the person sitting in front of you and like what they need the most. But I'm also a huge advocate of functional movement, so that requires a lot of creativity sometimes. Thinking of, Meredith, what you said made me think like, these some of these CPRs are based on a single study, whereas the CPGs, I mean, think yeah. of just the quantity of evidence that that is based off of. Like, how much more valuable is that information? Even though it's a general statement, it might be like moderately effective to do therapeutic exercise for X diagnosis. It's not giving us a lot of specific information, but it's so much. It has so much more weight behind it. And just as a quick pause and rewind for our listeners who are a little bit confused about the acronym differences. Oh, so CPGs, just as a review, are the clinical practice guidelines that are published by the APTA, and they are a summary of all the available evidence for a specific body area or diagnosis. There are not there are, there are not a ton of them. There are a fair amount, and not every diagnosis and body part has been evaluated to the level of a CPG, but they offer probably the highest level of uh, collective evidence. That said, they're extremely long and a tiny bit dry, and they are not nearly as flashy as clinical professionals. So but there's the summary page, which is pretty short There and is sweet. the summary there page, summary which page. is essentially like a giant abstract. Yeah, easier to digest than it a full. It is easier to digest, but uh, that, that's where that difference comes in. I think, to Casey's point, a lot of the criticism that I have heard from more seasoned clinicians about CPRs is that they make these little mini cookie cutter robot clinicians in that everyone that fits this gets a thoracic manip regardless of what that patient may be looking at or what your experience has told you. So to Casey's point, I think that that is a benefit of the CPGs over the CPRs is they give you a lot more freedom to incorporate the other two pillars of evidence-based care to really personalize things to your patient. So to wrap up for today's uh, Sir Cass, I think what we're going to do is we're going to go around the table and I want to hear everyone's quick elevator pitch for what they think should happen to CPRs from this point on. Um, I'll start. I certainly don't think that they should completely die because I think the possibility of having a truly prescriptive uh, CPR in the long-term future could be extremely powerful if we actually knew that a specific treatment would help a specific diagnosis um, and not necessarily just the passage of time. However, I think the present iteration is not adequate and I would defer to other kinds of evidence and um, the other two pillars of evidence-based practice. Casey. So I would like to see the CPRs adapt and survive, essentially. I think we need better research for newer ones coming out. I think the current ones probably need to be validated. And then our education model as a whole needs to look at what's currently out there and potentially weed out some of the unnecessary clinical prediction roles. Goodbye, Pilates-based <laughs> I'm going to make someone real mad with that. That's, that's going to go over like a little balloon. hate on the Twitter. <laughs> I'm with Casey. I don't think they should die, but they should definitely evolve. Um, they need to... Maybe it's just changing the mindset and making them more prognostic in our use or getting better research to support some actual prescriptive CPRs, but the way we're using them right now needs to die. 
I have a feeling this last one is going to be a little bit more rough than the first three. So, Dr. Mahan, give me me your... uh, Well, I'm going to have the unpopular opinion here, and I'm back in my my boy uh, Chad Cook 100%. Ride or die. Prescriptive prescriptive clinical prediction rules need to die a slow, painful death and never come back again. Um... And this whole conversation just reminds me of this article I read, like, a long time ago, um, called Stopping the Spread of Misinflammation by Jonathan Sullivan. And the quote that stuck with me was he, he was talking, he said, even peer-reviewed scientific literature is, on average, about 95% And, uh, <laughs> in my humble God, opinion... God, I had to beat something else. <laughs> in my humble opinion, prescriptive clinical prediction rules are... Without doubt in that 95%. And what about the Pilates one? Is that in the 95%? Well? <laughs> Definitely. It, that's in like the bottom one of the, the 95%. The bottom one of the 95%. Okay. I'm light the fire with the Pilates. <laughs> <laughs> so just, uh, I guess to kind of summarize and, and just bring it all back home, the panel here is generally uh, pessimistic about the current state of uh, CPRs. And I think that this podcast hopefully warrants everyone sitting down and reflecting on one how much stock you're putting in them and two what they really are at the present moment and three if you are angry enough to burn them to the ground like Riley. <laughs> we appreciate all you guys taking the time to listen to us please hit us up at the at CertCastKC twitter feed we love hearing from you guys there we're going to be changing the model for CertCast going forward starting next month we're going to be breaking these down into small bi-weekly i think that's every other week right yes 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 yes. (laughs) bi-weekly uh podcasts that are going to take on a little bit more focused topics so we're excited to hear what you guys have to say about that we're excited to see how that does within the community again thanks for listening and we'll see you next time